Uh, if you'd like to help out that way, you can do that as well. And then I will go ahead and just uh, let you um, look at the bulletin for the rest of the announcements that are there. But for now, I will invite you to stand with me. As you can see, we've been having some issues with our overheads, so we're going to go ahead and invite you to open to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read the word together. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12 through verse 17. And again, we've probably got a number of different versions in here. Just feel free to read out of yours. It's just fine. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness. Cole, hold it. We can do better now. Come on now. This is God's word. Let's read it like he's standing here. Okay, one more time. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your love. And we pray that, Lord, where your love and grace has been so richly and lavishly poured out upon us, help us to be extenders of that grace in the same way. Father, we thank you for the church, the body of Christ, that you called us to be part of. And as we spend time discussing some of these things involved and what it means to be part of this body of Christ, Father, help us to learn, to embrace, to live out these things, that we might be a gracious blessing to one another, that we might be there as each other's hands and feet, uh, lifting each other up, uh, encouraging one another, standing with each other. Father, we thank you that on this side of the threshold, uh, this is the gift that you have given us to be part of a body of believers, like-minded in these essential truths that ultimately uh, uh, explain, give way to, and undergird our, 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 our where we're going to be after we cross the threshold. One day in heaven, we'll be with brothers and sisters from all generations and all nations, uh, tribes, tongues, and such, and we'll be able to be together and worship you around the throne, free of any troubles, free of any of the difficulties in life, free of persecutions or anything like that. So, Father, here in this time and space, we pray that in this place and others who are gathered similarly around and in your name, we just pray that this would be a place of great grace and refreshing encouragement, even correction when it's needed. But, Father, let this be a place where we know that we are part of your body and that ultimately we can be there with each other as we make our way toward heaven's country. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and be seated? I think it's been well said that companion books like the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians, um, again, companion books, it's been said that Ephesians, or let me start with Colossians, Colossians is generally themed as being the Christ of the church. He's expressed in glorious terms as Paul talks about him. In Ephesians, we see the church of Christ, the church, the body that ultimately has Christ as its head. And this is the book that we're currently in. Ladies, you're going to enjoy the idea of going through Colossians starting tomorrow night, and that'll be a rich thing to be studying alongside of this book. Um, But in our study in Ephesians, Paul has, to this point, spent the first three chapters talking about what we are in Christ. You might turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in the, our study today. But in, Colossi- in uh, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul again has been talking much about what we are in Christ, the idea that we are saved by God's grace through faith. Uh, we were rebels and outcasts, but now we are accepted in the beloved. We were outsiders, even cons- uh, in regard to the children of Israel, the children of promise, but now along with believing Jews, believing Israel, 
We are now part of a new entity called, again, the body of Christ, the church. And so this is what Paul has been talking about in the first three chapters. And it's not in, uh, it's not a surprise. It's not insignificant. It's not, uh, by coincidence that he happens to talk about those things first. Because resting, knowing, living, dwelling in those truths then leads us to consider what that looks like lived out by those of whom those things are true. In other words, the first three chapters lay the groundwork for the final three chapters. Now, of course, Paul didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He wrote letters, and we have since divided them into chapters and verses so we can find passages easier. But the first half of the letter is written in one way, leading toward and and sort of anticipating building up toward the second half of the letter where we are now moving into. And so we now begin to look at what it means to, well, let me say this. In the first three chapters, we looked at the church of Christ in terms of the individual and what the individual, where the individual is, where you and I stand in our relationship with God and Christ. Now, in the second half, we look at the church in terms of its outward expression through the way that it lives in family, in the workplace, in all different contexts. In other words, if these things in chapters 1 through 3 are in fact true of us, then that will look like something outwardly. So I'm going to start by saying something right at the beginning. Um, we don't move in the first three chapters from a wonderful expression of the grace of God, this explanation of what it means to be saved, not of our own works, but rather it's the gift of God, lest anyone boast. This idea of being saved, not because we're good enough or we've earned it or anything like that, but because of the merits of Christ. We don't move from that into some different thing where now all of a sudden it's, okay, now it's all about what you do. It's not what happens. Chapters 1 through 3, or the first half of the book, naturally now flow into the second half of the book. In other words, what we're talking about is not moving into a discussion about sort of a a rote obligation on the part of believers that have received that. So now we have to do, do, do as if somehow that becomes a meritorious thing. No. Instead, the second half of the book in describing what the church looks like and behaves like and interacts like is the natural expression of what has grown from that which has been wrought within us. If we think that we participate in salvation in the sense that we're doing something to earn it, we are mistaken and we will naturally then fall into a form of legalism. We will naturally begin to think that I need to do something, if not to earn it, to keep it. And both are equally wrong And without sounding too blunt or putting too fine a point on it, equally wicked. Because they mislead us from understanding what grace has really, is about and was really accomplished. What is, what its purpose is. If righteousness comes by the law or by our activities in righteousness, then Christ died for nothing. Let that sink in. Okay? If you could earn it, if it were even possible that you could earn it, you might say, oh, it's possible, but I'm just never going to do it because I'm not good enough. No, if it were even possible, then Jesus didn't have to come. It's pointless for him to come because you could earn it. And if you didn't, too bad for you. Should have tried harder. That's not the gospel. And once you are saved, to think that somehow you're holding on to it is also mistaken. I've used the analogy before, I'll use it again. Most of us in this room, or many of us at least, have had small children at one point. And at some point or another, they saw something across the street they wanted to go see or go get. And so we said, hold on, let me hold your hand. Or what we probably would say to them is, hold mommy's hand, hold daddy's hand, and then we go across the street. Now, they might be holding on to your hand, but if they decided to let go because they got distracted or something, who's really holding whose hand? Right? Same, similar kind of a thing. When it comes to your salvation, you didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. Y'all aren't keeping it, and I'm not keeping it. 
Peter describes it this way, that this rich, imperishable reward that waits in heaven is kept for us who are kept by the power of God. And therefore, we can start by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He just, it's, it's praiseworthy truth. So when we move from the first half, all about grace, this amazing thing God has done in not only saving us, but in bringing us into this family, this body of Christ, we celebrate this. We're so thankful for this and everything. And now we move into what that looks like when it's lived out. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this now becomes a legal trip. No, this is just what it looks like when you really appreciate and understand what it is you've been saved from. If the, gosh, it's hard to even put into words what we were saved from, both in terms of ourselves and in terms of the judgment that we were heading for. But we were taken out of that place, transferred from darkness into his glorious light. He did that. He took us from where we were and he put us somewhere else entirely. Had he not, we would have gone right down that sadly, tragically, well-deserved judgment. But we're not now because of him. We have been set free from that penalty. Now, most people, including myself, don't like to spend a lot of time dwelling on that kind of thing because it's pretty negative. It's pretty rough to think about some of that. This is what was in store. I don't want to dwell there. I want to dwell on the happy stuff. Heaven. I know I'm going. I'm thankful for that. But you know what? There is value from time to time to stop and think about what you were saved from. Because when you do, and you begin to truly understand just what your condition was. You gain a whole new appreciation for what your condition now is. And when you realize you had nothing to do with it, it's like, this is not because I was such a good person. I gave God a lot to work with. I was lovable. No, no. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When you remember that, when you consider that, there is a level of thanksgiving and gratefulness, gratitude for the grace of God that is so often missed when we don't consider that. So I say all that to say, as we move into chapter four and beyond, we're going to talk about a lot of very practical things. Paul talks about a lot of practical outworkings that flow from the life of somebody who has been changed by the grace of God. And so with that said, we're going to move again into chapters 4 through 6. Talks about the church, both individually and corporately. Talks about the call to take to put off the old man and to put on the new. Uh, it speaks about walking in love and wisdom and light and walking together in truth in the body, the family, the workplace, wherever it is that you are a believer, which of course is everywhere, right? Anywhere that we find ourselves, what it means to live in that context. Talk, we'll talk about spiritual warfare and these kinds of things. These are practical elements within the body of Christ that you and I as, as individual believers, but also corporately as a body, experience or, or at least share an experience in. This is why the body together is so important. This is why the assumption is made by Paul that believers are together. Because we have this shared experience of salvation, uh, the, 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 the foundational truth that we're saved, but also the daily experience of what it means to be saved in a world that is increasingly dark. It's not a small thing to say we need each other, to encourage one another, to help each other out, to uh, to support one another and pray for one another and these kinds of things. This is not just touchy-feely stuff. This is hardcore Christianity. This is why Paul... Or, I keep doing this. I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but I just seem to always go there. This is why the author to Hebrews, in any case, the Holy Spirit says that we are not to forsake the gathering together of the saints which sadly is the habit of some, as he goes on to say. It ought not be so, but rather instead we should be there to stir one another up to love and good works, right? So this is why we gather, to hear from God's word, to break bread together, to pray together, to fellowship together, to be part of the body of Christ, 
in the first century in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, they did this from house to house. I'm thankful that we hear about this happening within our own fellowship. We experience this from time to time as we gather together and fellowship genuinely. This is going to become more and more necessary as the days go on. As the world outside becomes decidedly more in the grip of the wicked one, who is, by the way, and has been since, really, actually, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, really, right? He has been the God of this world. And so you and I need each other. And we need to be gathered together where Christ is the focus, the center of what we're doing. Because we will be encouraged by that. We will stand together. We will discover that we have more in common than we don't in terms of the weight of what we have in common. We share that which matters most. And so to gather together and to gather together and to look like what we're going to be studying over the next few chapters is something that we would do well to, to dive into wholeheartedly. So that being said, let me go ahead and read some of the text. We're really just going to cover the first few verses today. And not even that if I keep on gabbing here. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Lord, we pray that as we consider these things, that the Holy Spirit would move among us and help us to understand these things, and of course then to apply these things. After all, if it is this unity of the Spirit and the, and the, the bond of peace in that, we pray for His activity here as we consider these things. And so be with us and help us to understand this passage and to see the, the genuine, beautiful, and important practical applications of it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Therefore. Okay, amen, right? But when we see the word therefore, what's it there for, right? It's there for, uh, it's there because of the things that Paul's been talking about previously. I'll just sum it up by looking at the last few verses of chapter 3, where Paul uh, is praying that they would be, uh, he would be, they would be granted, uh, according to the riches of his glory, that they be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Again, this is an important thing that is, uh, pertinent here in verse one of chapter four, this idea of the inner man. Uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, last week we talked about what a gigantic thing that is that Paul is praying for, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a lot of fullness. But that is the prayer. And at the very least, what we can take from that is the knowledge that God is not wanting himself to be a stranger to us, but wanting us to know him on very close terms. The idea, matter of fact, when Paul says, therefore I the prisoner, uh, uh, the prisoner of the Lord, that word of literally is in. I the prisoner in the Lord. There's always this idea of the closeness, the proximity of God with his people, even in terms of the one who is captivated is close to he who captivates. There is not this sense that God is over there, distant in some way, not just theoretically, theologically, but practically daily. He is with us. That's what the word and the name Emmanuel means, right? God with us. This isn't just that he was with us when he came and, and took on a body of flesh and died on the cross and did the miracles and rose and did all these things, but rather it means he is close. Paul talks about um, uh, in Philippians about how the Lord is near. He's not actually talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about the proximity of Christ. He is near. Now, we want to make sure that as we live out our Christian lives, that we live them out with that knowledge. This is not a a peripheral thing. He is with us. When you go to work tomorrow morning, he is with you. When you go home from church today, he is with you. In your families, he is with you. In your hardest times, he is with you. Not just theoretically, but as real as he stood there weeping over the grave of Lazarus, so he is with you right now. And we know this because he's alive. He's not dead. 
he is risen. And so he is with us. Now, therefore, again, the prisoner in the Lord, I beseech you, I urge you. The word can also mean encourage. I am urging you with the deepest of encouragements to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, it's always important to remember that it's not just that Paul is beseeching, it is the Holy Spirit who is beseeching. When Paul wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very heart of God is made known in this request, this desire, this strong urging of encouragement. Walk worthy of the call with which you were called. Now, you'll notice here, Paul is not talking about a calling to a specific focus of ministry. Walk worthy of the calling to evangelism that you've been called. He's not talking about that specifically. Whatever that ministry is, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about this in the most basic, rudimentary terms. What is the ultimate calling that you and I have been giving? Been given, I should say. To be saved. To answer the call to move, uh, be moved by God from darkness to light. To answer that call to respond to the gospel and be saved. That is the call first and foremost. Walk worthy of that. Now, we have spent a lot of time, and most importantly, Paul, and again, the Holy Spirit, has spent three whole chapters talking about what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean work hard and you'll be worthy of something. It's not about you working to earn a place of worthiness. The word worthy there does speak about the idea of a price being paid and to uh, and to approach that sense of value and that kind of thing. But we need to make sure we always couple that with what it means to be saved. As a matter of fact, this wasn't really where I was going to go, but just take a minute here. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, because this does, in Paul's writing already, kind of express what I'm talking about here. Here we see what the idea of works are in their context. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has actually, on the one hand, said we are not saved by our good works. However, we do good works as a result of our being saved, and those good works are things that God has laid out for us to walk in. So in a sense, you can't even take credit for the work you're doing because God laid it out there and said, okay, now walk in these, right? It's kind of like he's making sure we understand in context when we talk about walking worthy, there has to be built into that a sense of the gratitude for what God has done that fuels our desire to walk in holiness. Jesus himself said, when he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, Clearly, you and I cannot be perfect. But the idea here is that of walking in separation, walking in holiness, walking with the Lord as opposed to walking in the world. This, again, is not legalism. This is the natural response of what ultimately grows from somebody who knows what they've been saved from. Um, how many of you have ever adopted a rescue dog? Good, good. Not getting on the rest of you that didn't get a rescue dog, but just, but you know, a rescue dog appreciates where, where they are now. Like they know what it was like to be abandoned on the street, left in a backyard on a chain when the family moved. You know, crazy situations. And then all of a sudden you take them in and for a minute it takes a while for them to trust you, but once they do, They are the most loyal animals in the world because they know where they were and they know where they are now. There is a natural... Matter of fact, it is interesting. The word worship in Greek, there's two words. One is latreia, which speaks of a liturgical kind of worship, the stuff priests would do in the temple. The other is proskuneo. It means literally to kiss toward. And an illustration that is a pretty good one of what that means is when you get home or you give your dog a treat and they can't stop kissing your face... 
proskuneo. They love you like there's nothing else that matters in the world. They love you. They want to be around you. They can't help but express it. That's proskuneo. Oh, that we would worship God like our dog worships us, you know? But that's basically the idea. There's a sense of where I was and where I now am because somebody took me there. It's not hard to live for somebody who's like that. You know, when we think about what God did for us, it's not hard to respond to that, which is why it's valuable to take time to consider these things from time to time. Walk worthy of the calling which with which you are called. The word walk there doesn't speak of literally taking a walk around the block. It speaks of your, the course and manner of your life. It speaks of the idea of how you live day to day, which implies the idea that this is how we're living. It's not just something we do when people are looking or, or just in a particular circumstance when we can uh, be mindful of that and we think, oh gosh, this is what Jesus would do in this situation. No, we're always thinking like that is the idea, that we sort of grow to condition ourselves to live in that place of constantly being great, uh, grateful for what God has done. Uh, I, I, I find it interesting in our day that, uh, and I've seen this a lot lately. I don't know, it just for some, maybe I've just been missing it all this time, but it's, it seems like I've noticed a lot of it. Um, but there's this thing called daily affirmations. You ever heard, I don't know if you ever heard of that. Daily affirmations, the idea of taking time in the morning to remind yourself that you're valuable, that you've got gifts and skills, you have something to offer this world, and basically building yourself up so you can face your day with a certain level of confidence. The believer has kind of an interesting and far more deep, rich, and meaningful opportunity every morning. When we understand um, that we simply are what we are by the grace of God, but that he's got us, And that we can truly depend upon him and not have to be left to depend upon our own devices or propping ourselves up. That is a pretty important thing. When we understand that our successes and our failures are all things that within the hand of God become useful opportunities to build into us things that might never otherwise be built. We begin to see all of our experiences in life through that lens. It's no longer about avoiding the difficult things or avoiding the things that might knock down my sense of self-esteem, but rather instead throwing myself fully into that which God has laid before me and letting him do what he's going to do so that he might make me what he wants to make me. That's a relational thing that is outside of ourselves, but that's how near God is. Again, we don't go to church to be with God. We go to church to gather together around God. God's everywhere, and he's with you and I all the time. This is a really great blessing that we can do this together, but he's just as much, he's just as close to you when you leave here today as he is when you're with him here today. This is the beauty of it. This is what it means to be homed in Christ, to be found in him, to be less about myself and fully given over to him that he might do with me what he will. Because it's in that place that we find our highest calling, our highest sense of meaning, our deepest sense of of rich experience and existence. Not sure how I got there. I apologize. But... Oh, the calling with which you were called. Again, the idea of salvation and being called to be with him first and foremost. Before there's any acts of service, it's first and foremost about being with him. And he goes on. And and, by, and that thought, by the way, finishes with, with which you were called. It again is him who has called us. Um, we love him because he first loved us. We didn't seek him first, but rather he came after us. It is he who is the great initiator. And that should bring us a great sense of joy and peace. Because if we know that he's got his eye upon us, and it's he who's the great pursuer, it's he who's the great sustainer, it's he who's the great leader and carrier, then this is something that we can really truly rest in. No longer do we have to be afraid it's all on our shoulders, but rather instead, it is on his capable, vast shoulders. The calling with which we were called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. With all lowliness, the idea here of humility. Um, we'll read it here. I think we've read it a couple of weeks ago, but let's read it again in Philippians if you want to turn one book to your right. In Philippians chapter 2,
Look at verse 3 with me. Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's really verses 3 through about verse 8 that I want to focus on, but it's hard to read that passage without reading all of it. Um, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or deceit, but rather with lowliness of mind. The idea of embracing an attitude of humility, setting others first, thinking of others' needs, he says not just our own needs. It's not like like it's wrong to ask for our daily bread, as Jesus taught us to pray and all that kind of thing. But there's a point at which it goes from seeking the Lord and his provision for needs and, and just praying for things that are there, but there's a point at which it becomes all about us and we sort of forget the idea of what it means to adopt a genuine posture of humility. Paul is saying here in Philippians, which is another letter he wrote from this same prison, he's saying, let set aside selfish ambitions and all those kinds of things. Rather, instead, with lowliness of mind, with genuine humility, connect with the idea of taking on the mindset that Christ himself took on. Now, when it says in being in the form of God, he is telling us that the reason Jesus did not have to grasp after this idea of Godhood is because he already had it. And being God, he set aside his glory. He set aside that throne, if you will, for a time. He took on a body of flesh, which, by the way, is a good thing to spend a minute thinking about. When we help somebody and feel pretty good about it, look how I humbled myself, Lord. Think about Jesus humbling himself. Can you even begin to imagine the condescension involved in the God of creation, the God of the universe, becoming one of us for a time? Is there anything further in distance than that? Right? That's exactly what Paul is saying. If God himself was willing to take on a body of flesh in order to become like us, that he might die for our sins and so on, then this is the model for the mindset. There is no greater example of humility than Christ's incarnation and his crucifixion. This is the mindset that Paul says, let this mindset also be in you. That was in Christ Jesus. There is no room for selfish ambition. There is no room for pride, but rather instead, it is all about Lord I want to be like you, and your mindset, your attitude, make me like you in that way. When people see me, let them see you. Now think about a church body where everybody has that mind. I don't have to think real hard. You know? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful though, and I'm not trying to, you know, make you arrogant and prideful. I just, Butter you up and all that kind of, but, but there is a beauty in a group of people that love the Lord and want to be like Him around each other. That's what church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be about bureaucracies. It's not supposed to be about levels of ascension and authority in a church. It's about servanthood. It's about loving, putting others, not just your own needs, but others above yourself, that kind of thing. When, when, when a body of people gather together, in Christ's name, with Christ's attitude and heart, it is a really refreshing place to be. And this is exactly what God wants a church to be. This is what the Holy Spirit is bringing about as he works within believers individually, corporately, that becomes a testimony to the world and a tremendous refreshment to those inside. When Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another, 
That is a powerful testimony, but it requires that we genuinely love one another. <clears throat> this is the work of the Holy Spirit corporately in the body. So when Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, there is the understanding that it is a response to what God has done, and it is done in concert with the Holy Spirit's ultimate help. We become what God makes us by his hand, and we all become blessed by it as we're around each other. That's the church. That's why when somebody leaves the church because they were hurt, I mean genuinely hurt, not just feeling like they were hurt, but something genuinely happens to somebody in a church, and nobody goes after them, nobody deals with it, or the leadership tightens up and says no. And when, when a genuine wrong has been done, I'm not talking about false accusations happen all the time, but when a genuine hurt has been caused, the body from top, oh, well, that's a stupid way to put that, isn't it? No matter what role you're playing in the church, we should be gathered around, and this is a place of restoration and refreshing. There's no place for selfish ambition. Again, this this is difficult for all of us, myself included, because we all have a tendency to sort of look out for ourselves and that kind of thing. But when we let that down and we let the Lord use us and work in us the way that he's talking about, it really makes being part of the fellowship of the saints something to be looked forward to all week long. That's why they could gather house to house daily. They needed each other and they loved being around each other because they had what mattered most in common, and they served one another. Even things like potlucks in the first century, which um, refer to as love feasts, basically, right? Paul talks about this, and he says, when you gather together, some of you are showing up drunk, and some of you are doing these things, and people are cutting, you know, basically putting themselves first, and people who are showing up and have nothing, they're, they're you know, it's just, it's a bad scene there in Corinth when he talks about this. You wouldn't think that's that big of a deal, You know, someone cuts in line at the potluck and whatever. It's like, okay, it's forgotten, whatever. But even that, that should be a great expression of our togetherness and family. You know, that there should be a a sense of this is a good time for us to gather together over a meal and, 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 and be together in the Lord and this kind of thing. Even that was something that Paul considered sacred. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, the taking of the Lord's Supper and that kind of thing. But it's, uh, again, it, it may seem a small thing, but This is the work that the Holy Spirit finds it significant enough to do within the the fellowship of the saints. So lowliness of mind, or lowliness, and here back in uh, Ephesians 4, and gentleness. The idea of gentleness or meekness is an interesting term, and it connects very directly with the next term that he uses, the idea there of forbearing or long-suffering. The idea of, of, uh, of gentleness speaks of meekness, and meekness... My favorite definition of meekness is the idea of power under control. You could do something in response, but you don't. Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so gentleness or this meekness, this ability to know, this, this knowledge that you have the ability to do something in response, but you don't. Again, it connects very closely with the next term, the idea of long-suffering, which literally speaks of patience, but not like patience endurance like another Greek term means. This speaks of the idea of forbearance. You've wronged me, or and I have not responded in kind. You can see how it connects then with this idea of meekness. I could retaliate, but I don't. Why? Because if this mind that was in Christ is in me also, then I am willing to let you humiliate me if it works toward the holding together of the unity of the saints, which is the bond of peace. Now tell me that's not hard. That's difficult. But that's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. And oh, isn't it beautiful when you're around people that have that mindset. Suddenly when you've said something that you know you shouldn't have and they don't retaliate, you're very quick to apologize because you caught yourself. You realized you did that. And there's not this cold knives between the two of you now and this kind of thing. It's just there's no place for it. Could there be more inner man practical kinds of work that the Holy Spirit has to do within us than this? This is getting to the very core of what we are as people. It's pushing against that which is human nature and replacing it, washing over it and removing it and changing it into Christ-like nature. 
This is what it means to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's not about gunning for positions. It's about getting down to the lowest place. Jesus, in his last night upon the earth before the crucifixion, um, my favorite readings of these are when you combine the the two uh, descriptions from Luke and John, where in Luke we find out in the upper room there comes a point when the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. Now, I would like to think that that happened prior to what John describes in John 13, where Jesus starts to wash their feet. I really hope it didn't happen after that. I'm, 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 I'm going to give him credit and just say, okay, this, this, you know. But as they're arguing, this has been a running argument, by the way. Matter of fact, it is interesting uh, when James and John's mother come to Jesus and they say, in your kingdom, let my sons sit at your right hand and your left, right? And, she, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. It is interesting that John and possibly his mother are among the eyewitnesses at the cross. If she was there, what did she see on Jesus' right hand and left? Two criminals, but she also basically saw what she was asking for. This is what it means to be at Jesus' side. But this argument about who's the greatest, Jesus has been teaching them about this quite a bit. And he will teach them one more time here, but not first without giving an illustration. He takes his garment off, puts a towel around himself, or, you know, a garment around his waist, gets a towel and a basin, and he begins to wash their feet. Now this was the job of the lowest servant in the house. You would generally not even pay attention to this servant. You would come in, you'd have dust on your feet for, cause you're wearing open sandals essentially. You, you walk into someone's house as a kindness and a courtesy. If they had servants, that lowest servant's job was to wash the feet. And after all, who wants to wash somebody's feet? So you gave that job to the lowest person on the totem pole. And so they'd wash their feet. Well, Jesus does this. He gets down on his knees in front of his disciples. Talk about a backwards posture. Peter picks up on this. One of his moments of brilliance, right? He's like, this is wrong. This should not be the way this looks. And of course, Jesus, you know, corrects him, teaches him something important there. But the point is this. Jesus would tell his disciples, you call me Lord and rightly so, for so I am. But if you have seen me washing your feet, so you too should wash one, wash one another's. I'm sure the message hit the mark a lot harder that time, now that they actually saw the humility of their Lord, their master, their creator, the one who's about to pay for their sin, the only one who ever could, washing their feet. Only in the kingdom of God does that make any sense. And it becomes the model for the rest of us. And this is what we do for one another. If I thought of it sooner, some of you have been in a church service where they did foot washings. This would have been a good time to do that. We're not going to do that, so you can breathe easy. But um, but this, you know, they were not prepared for this. And certainly none of them picked up the basin and the towel. Because they're the greatest, right? This is not a job for the greatest, it's a job for the least. And Jesus said, well, you're right. But he who is greatest in the kingdom will be least among you. That's why it's called the backwards kingdom or the upside down kingdom. Because our approach to Christ-likeness is not one looking for exalted position, but rather instead one that is looking for opportunities to be like Jesus was to those around us. And Paul is saying in Philippians, let this mindset be in you. Here he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Um, Gentleness, long-suffering, again, forbearance, and then again, bearing with one another in love. Again, I'll emphasize here the importance of the together element of the church, the idea that this is what we are like together. Now, of course, this is what we are to be like all the time. In the workplace, 
um, in, uh, in our families, in all these different situations we find ourselves on the road in traffic. This is the mindset we're to take on and to live out all the time. Certainly also then, therefore, within the body of Christ, I will ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter, uh, um, Hebrews chapter uh, 10 for just a second. Let's read the passage. And I'll go ahead and read from verse 19 to 25. This is a great passage to preach on, but I'm just going to read it basically today. Again, it starts with a therefore. The author here has um, been talking about all that Christ has done and setting them apart. And so then he says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, again, think of the gigantic nature of that statement. You can go beyond the veil. Okay. To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Again, it's because of him. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, then the admonitions, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. In other words, as we are living in anticipation of Christ coming for us, it becomes all the more natural... I won't just say important, but it really becomes all the more natural for us to realize that, man, we are getting closer and closer to the day when we're going to be in heaven together with him. Glorified, we will be in that new eternal place one day, very soon when Jesus comes for his bride. We will see the one who washed his disciples' feet. We don't want to be arguing like they did when that day comes. We want to have the kind of mindset that he had then we want to live out now. And that means coming together and exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Matter of fact, I love that word when he talks here about the idea of um, considering, uh, stirring up uh, loving good works. That word stir up is the kind of word you would use if you were describing a riot. Like if you got in there and you stirred up a riot, that's the word you would use. You want to have that same kind of gumption when you're with one another. You want to stir up this mindset. Of, of, and not so you get attention, but you just want to be about the kind of idea, the attitude that Christ had, and others pick up on that kind of thing. It just becomes the natural tendency of the body of Christ to live in this kind of a place. This is what Paul is talking about here. Now that he has spent all this time talking about our position in Christ, where we were from and where we now are, well, where we are in Christ involves this idea of being in the church, in the body of Christ. And this is how we are with one another. Uh, back in Ephesians here as we bring this in. That word love there is the word agape, that Christ-like, other-centered, giving kind of love. In verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that keeping the unity, we're not the ones creating that unity. He's brought us together. We are being diligent, which is what that uh, that term endeavoring means. It means to guard and to be intentional about, to exert ourselves toward the effort of keeping that unity intact. Okay? And this is the unity of the Spirit, which is the bond of peace, right? This idea of walking in the peace of God as a corporate body of people, living in the unity that the Holy Spirit is cultivating within us, and it's important enough for us to guard it. Now, here's where I'm going to take a negative tack for just a second. There is a difference between biblical unity and ecumenism. Some of you may not know what that term is. Ecumenism means coming together and forsaking differences to sort of join together for whether it's a cause or something like that. There are things that we might agree with non-Christians about. Abortion, um, homelessness, poverty. We might have a similar mindset that would want to see that changed or want to see a mind changed in regard to, you know, the unborn and that kind of thing. <clears throat> we could hold that view with people that are Mormons. But that doesn't mean we can fellowship with Mormons. We might like Mormons. I've never met a Mormon I didn't actually like. 
very kind, family-oriented, wonderful people, but they have a different God. And so I can't be in fellowship with them. I can work with them, I can hang out with them, I can get coffee with them, but I'll never actually have genuine fellowship with them. Not because I don't, you know, I mean, I don't want, I know you can't, so I don't want it, but just, but I, I can't actually have fellowship with them because fellowship involves getting together around the Lord. Well, they have a different God, and so it's not fellowship. We might have conversations about God, but it will never enter fellowship because we don't have the same God. You follow what I'm saying? Turn to Romans 16 for one second. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. Paul says this to the believers in Rome. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses uh, and avoid them. It says something else in there, doesn't it? How many of you caught that? It says something else. It doesn't just say that. It says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There is a time to divide. Boy, you just said all that stuff and now you're saying this. There is a time where it is appropriate and necessary to divide. When somebody comes in teaching a doctrine that is unbiblical, misrepresents the Lord, changes the nature of salvation and grace, or whatever it might be, I'm not talking about peripheral issues that people debate about, okay? We're not talking about whether the rapture fits on a particular part of the timeline. That's not what we're talking about. People can have good faith disagreements about that. That is a peripheral doctrine. However, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to grace, somebody comes in with a different teaching on those things than what the Bible teaches. You are to separate from them. You are to mark them and avoid them. That doesn't mean you can't witness to them, doesn't mean you can't debate them on the topics and try and win them over to the truth. But you cannot feel as though they are part of your fellowship when they have an aberrant theology. Now this is a hard thing too, isn't it? We're talking about the difficulty of our pride keeping us from necessarily humbling ourselves before others and that kind of thing. That's one hard thing. Another hard thing is confrontation. When someone comes in with a false doctrine... I will commend some of you, by the way, that have, uh, I mean, all of you, but there's a couple in particular that are newer to the church that have asked me out for coffee because they want to ask me about doctrinal issues. Kudos to you. You want to make sure you're going to a church that is opening the Bible and teaching it, like Paul would say, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're teaching it correctly. And of course, that's my goal is to teach it correctly, you know, and, and you all know if I get off somewhere, you can confront me on that. But when that's that important to you, you're doing what Paul said in in Romans chapter 16. You are being careful about the doctrine that you're being fed to make sure that you're not being misled. Paul did say in the latter times there would be those that depart from the faith and they rather entertain doctrines of demons and such. Well, we're living in that day. So good for you for wanting to make sure. If I ever started teaching false doctrine, you should leave. You should go away and find a church that doesn't. And likewise, if you teach false doctrine here, I'm going to confront you on that. And I'm going to ask you to leave if you don't change. And all of you should do that, not just me. But that should be the mindset of a believer. We so cherish the purity of the gathering of the saints that we, as Paul again said in Ephesians chapter 4, that we endeavor... We are diligent, we guard the unity of the Spirit. Confrontation, for the right reasons, does not engender disunity. It actually supports and encourages and builds unity on truth. And there's nothing more important than that. 
we could all get together and watch a football game and it wouldn't matter what we believed. In here though, and when you live your life out there, this is the stuff that matters. And it's part of what it means to have a healthy fellowship. Um, we're not living in days that you can just sort of think of church as a social club anymore. It's never been a good idea to do that anyway. But we're living in days now where I think it's becoming obvious to me that more and more people out there, when they come in here, they're realizing the necessity of knowing what God had to say. Because these days are wicked and deceptive and this world is falling apart. And suddenly now we're confronted with that which matters most. And it's important for us to make sure that in our unity of fellowship and the unity of the spirit, which is the bond of peace, that we endeavor to guard that, that nothing would take it away. That we would stand for what is right and true, biblically speaking. And that that would inform us in how we live out our Christian lives. So we're going to be talking more about some of these things as we make our way, uh, continuing through the rest of the letter. But um, but for now, I'm going to go ahead and pray and I'm going to invite the ushers to come up. And we're going to go ahead and share in the Lord's Supper as we close our service today. So Today, um, we're going to invite you as we worship to take a moment and to partake. We're not going to stop in the middle of the song because I can't play and talk at the same time. So in the midst of the song, as you're led, go ahead and take the bread, take the juice and the, you know, the cup and, uh, and take it in as we worship. But Father, we want to thank you for this morning, this opportunity to come and to open your word. We thank you that you have given us this beautiful gift of fellowship among the saints. This, uh, this, this entity, this body of Christ, the church. And we thank you that while, uh, we do share this family and this, this being part of this body with believers from all generations and in all parts and walks of life in the world today, we thank you locally here for this fellowship and the fact that we can come together and desire to walk with you, to learn of you, to worship you, uh, to be there for one another as the body has, has been built to be. And we do pray that you would give us a genuine spirit of humility and gentleness, forbearance, a desire to be together in love and to even when necessary to, to guard and, and endeavor to, to, to keep this unity that you have given us. Father, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of your truth. And we thank you for the, the love that you demonstrate, not only in the cross, obviously, so clearly, but also in the fact that you have given us your word, your truth, upon which Jesus said that we would ultimately, uh, as he prayed for his disciples, that, uh, that, that, you would keep, that you would keep them in your truth. Your word is truth. We just thank you for the same desire on his part being true of us today. And so help us to have that same desire. Uh, Father, we love you and thank you for this time this morning. And as we enter into a time where we remember this Last Supper, where we gather around, as it were, to partake of the bread and the cup, uh, we want to thank you that this bread speaks of his broken body for us, this cup, his shed blood, through which we ultimately are saved. And thank you, Lord, that this is the work that you have done. It's not been left upon us to earn it in some way because we never could. But rather instead, you and your great love sent your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we praise you and bless you for this time and ask that you would bless it as we remember now. In Jesus' name, amen.
you for what you've done for us, Lord. We thank you that this is something you did not have to do, but out of your great love, you came, you took our sin away, you were buried, you rose from the dead, and now you ever live to even make intercession for us. Thank you for your great love, but we could never repay, certainly could never earn this. But we do want to worship you in thanksgiving and praise. We do want to walk worthy of the call that you've called us with. So help us. Work within us by your Holy Spirit. And may he have his way in us with little resistance. Let him find willing vessels. So thank you, Lord. It's the least, truly the least we can do. We just surrender ourselves to you afresh today. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't think we have overheads working yet, so let's go ahead and... Uh, oh, all right, we'll see. Let's, let's go ahead and stand together, and let's sing There Is None Like You, that last song we sang before we... you again for your goodness, grace, your presence in our lives. We thank you that Jesus is alive and our relationship with him is not one that is, has to be relegated to sort of a, um, a theoretical thing on the side, but instead we can be walking in this living relationship with our living Lord. So thank you for this. We pray that we would exit this place today with the renewed knowledge of your presence in our lives. And we just thank you again for the Holy Spirit working within us and pray that he would continue to do that and that you would make us more and more like Jesus, both to each other and to those in the world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all. If you need prayer for something, please come on up. Otherwise, I just pray you all have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you. <coughs> wow. I have much